ladies, that was wonderful. That was a great message, great song. Appreciate that. It's great to have you with us today, and we're going to go ahead and uh, continue with our service now. We've got a moment of uh, time to preach and share some truths, and trust it will be a blessing to you. Again, um, uh, we have kind of been in the midst of a, uh, a series through the weeks, and we had our faith promise, of course. We're at 68,000 so far, and uh, I believe we'll see more come in. I'm, I'm sure over the next week or two we'll see more, and we're excited about that, looking forward to that rising up, and uh, we are, we're looking forward to God blessing in an unusual there and providing for us so that we can continue to maintain and support the missionaries that we do and possibly even take some more missionaries on. That's our goal and desire as we seek to reach the world. Uh, the, um, the study, of course, has been kind of kind of set on hold for the faith promise, and today I'm going to share, as I mentioned last week, a a message that's a little bit more geared toward uh, our country and the great need uh, in our nation uh, in the coming years. Next week, fortunately, as I was just reminded by Brother Hamilton, uh, my message probably needs to be kind of directed at uh, our veterans and those public servants. I had anticipated on speaking on dinosaurs next week, and uh, they may qualify. However, I don't know that we want so many illustrations uh, running around the church. No, I'm joking, but I don't know that that would be appropriate. So I, I, I either am going to, you know, I think maybe I'm going to have to postpone it one more week. I know everybody's interested about dinosaurs. Uh, Barney does exist, and uh, so, you know, we're going to get to him, but uh, I, do, I don't want to shortchange our, our big day next week. And when I say big day, I'm talking about an opportunity to honor our veterans, to honor our public servants. And, and I don't want to talk about dinosaurs next week. But um, I'm going I'm to get to it. I didn't anticipate this one. This is the one that's throwing my whole schedule off. Uh, but I felt it was necessary and needful. I probably have uh, 15 pages of, of notes uh, in my file for this message, of which I have four in front of me. Okay. Um, it's been on my mind and heart for the last two, three weeks, very much. And uh, so it's one of those things I start off, and then I scrap it. And then I start off, and I scrap it. I take this, and I go this, and this. And finally this morning, when I was praying this morning here at the church, I felt that I got a little bit of direction. And so uh, you say, that's crazy. You've been at this for three weeks or two weeks. Yeah, I've been at it for probably three weeks now. But I really feel like maybe we're on course here today. And I want to be an encouragement to you, and I want to be a help to you. And uh, again, we, we have a tremendous uh, responsibility as believers. We have a, um, some paramount decisions to be making over these next uh, few days with our political leaders and uh, our civic leaders. And so I think it's important that we're prepared and that we are equipped to make those decisions, an informed decision. And again, I'm not going to talk about specific issues. That's really not my goal. I mean, we can call each other liars all day long. And that's basically what's been going on, it seems to me, in, in much of the... Uh, uh, rhetoric. Everybody says one person's lying, the other one says the other person's lying. And I, I honestly don't know all the ins and outs. I don't know all the details. I really don't know who's telling the truth at times, who isn't. I honestly can't tell you that. Uh, I don't know their heart, okay? I don't know them well enough to know that. But, but what I do know is what the Bible teaches me, what it tells me about these issues. And I'm, we're going to talk about a couple things today, and I hope it'll be a help to you. I do want to begin with a very foundational verse and passage, though, that addresses issues that I think this issue specifically, and addresses any kind of, of, of uh, 
whether it be presidential or Senate or uh, Congress or any kind of voting, uh, I think Proverbs 14.34 is a good place to start. And, and I just want to turn there and start there and, and recognize a couple of things along the way. And uh, today I've got three simple points, and we're not going to belabor any of them. And then I have one simple illustration for you, and uh, we'll, we'll spend some time on that one. But Proverbs chapter 14. Proverbs chapter 14 today. Let's just look at one verse as we kick some things off here. Verse 34. Again, we're so honored to have you with us today. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 34. The Bible says, Righteousness exalteth a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Righteousness exalteth a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, right now we're asking for your leadership. We have much to accomplish today, but we look forward to the baptism later, and we look forward, Father, to, Father, even the services this evening. But, Lord, for right now we have a period of time where we want to honor you, want to exalt you. We want your word to be elevated. So, Lord, help us, Lord, today now just to honor you with what's said and done. May you fill me with your spirit. May I walk in the spirit and not the flesh. Help me, Father, to proclaim your truth, your word, in a very practical and very powerful way. Lord, may you uh, speak to hearts. May ears be anointed that they may hear spiritually, not just physically. Lord, we certainly want truth today. Help us, Father, to be encouraged by it. And Lord, we'll love you and thank you for how you work in our lives. Thank you for loving us when we are unlovable. Thank you for accepting us when we're unacceptable. Thank you for including us in your family, although we don't even deserve it. Lord, for that, we are eternally grateful. May we please you now in every effort and every action of our life. We'll thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Proverbs 14, 34 again. Righteousness exalteth the nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. You know, America, and you may hear some of this next week, really. Let's face it, we're dealing with that next week to some degree. But America was founded a Christian nation. That's just a reality of it. Uh, again, this statement in no way implies that everyone involved in its founding was a Christian. That's not the issue. It's not that everybody was a Christian. But the nation was founded a Christian nation. Uh, and in reality, a number of those that did found this nation were Christian. Um, there have been a number of people uh, that through the years have sat in the seat of whether it be the president or other positions in our government that maybe weren't even Christian. But what we found through the years is that the men that have sat, the women even that have sat in these positions and these places, at least in the past, were very rooted in biblical Christian principle. Even if they themselves were not quote-unquote Christian, they adopted and embraced the outlook of a Christian moral base. The basis of our success as a nation has been rooted in our moral, ethical, and biblical foundation. That's all there is to it. Now again, we can go ahead and say, no, it's our economic base, but that is a falsehood. No one, no one can deny that many of the founding fathers, again, of the United States of America were men of deep religious convictions based in a very, in the Bible, by, by the way, 
And their, their Christian faith in the Lord Jesus Christ was very evident and on display. Of the 56 men who signed the Declaration of Independence, nearly half, 24 of them, held seminary or Bible school degrees. So there's no doubt, again, that we were based in this element. Our nation was grounded, founded, and built upon a very basic, fundamental truth. And that basic, fundamental truth was nothing less than the Bible. John Adams, the second U.S. president and signer of the Declaration of Independence, wrote this. He said, suppose a nation in some distant region should take the Bible for their only law book, and every member should regulate his conduct by the precepts there exhibited. Every member would be obliged in conscience to temperance, frugality, and industry, to justice, kindness, and charity toward his fellow men, and to piety, love, and reverence toward Almighty God. What a utopia, what a paradise would this region be? James Monroe, the fifth U.S. president, made this statement in his second annual message to Congress on November the 16th, 1818. He said, when we view the blessings which, uh, excuse me, with which our country has been favored, those which we now enjoy, and the means which we possess of handing them down unimpaired, to our latest posterity, our attention is irresistibly drawn to the source from whence they flow. Let us then unite in offering our most grateful acknowledgments for these blessings to the divine author of all good. Isn't that amazing? Patrick Henry remarked, remarked, the great pillars of all government are virtue, morality, and religion. What, what was that, Patrick? Mr. Henry, can you give me that one more time? Because I don't recall hearing that lately. The great pillars of all government are virtue, morality, and religion. This is the armor, my friend, and this alone that renders us invincible. Hmm. George Washington stated, Of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity... Religion and morality are indispensable supports. In vain would that man claim the tribute of patriotism who should labor to subvert these great pillars of human happiness, these firmest props of the duties of man and citizens. The mere politician, equal with the pious man, ought to respect and to cherish them. See, the truth is that leaders will come and go. That's just the reality. But biblical premise and foundation upon the foundation upon which we were established must remain if our nation is going to continue to stand. If we as a nation wish to continue to stand, we cannot depart from the most foundational and basic truths and the founding fathers and the, the attitude that they possessed even. We've got to consider, uh, continue to observe and preserve biblical morals and scriptural ethics. The direction that we presently find ourselves, I don't think anyone in the room would debate, is anything but scriptural. And I do believe and I trust today that it is the desire of every person in this room to preserve and to protect the Christian way of life. Because the Christian way of life is the lifestyle that built our nation to its 
glory. I'm not saying that everybody in the position of leadership has to be a Christian by definition of the Bible. That is not what I'm implying. But they do need to embrace Christian morality and ethics if we hope to preserve our nation for the next generation. Proverbs 14.34 once again says, Righteousness exalteth a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. I'd like to pose a question just for future thought. I don't really need an answer, and I'm not even going to to deal with it today. But I want you to think about this for just a moment. We often speak of third world countries and their enormous poverty. I want to ask you this simple question. It's something that came to my mind the other day, once again when I was praying here at the altar, a few days ago, and it just hit me like a ton of bricks. Is a nation pagan because it is poor? Or is it poor because it is pagan? And I want you to think about that over these next weeks and months. Give it some real thought. We often attribute poor or poverty to to being uneducated. We attribute it to a number of things. I want you to actually ask the question and think about this. Is a nation pagan because it is poor? Therefore, they have nothing, they can't believe in education or science, so they just turn to some crazy religions, nutty stuff, or just deny God completely. Or is the nation poor because it is pagan? It's kind of like what came first, the chicken or the egg, right? I just want you to think about that as you move along in life and as you read your Bible. Now, I want to consider a few things today. First of all, I want to consider the believer's role. I want to consider the believer's responsibility. And then note the believer's reach. First of all, the believer's role. Every single one of us as believers are to worship. That's as simple as it is, isn't it? We're to worship our God. Nobody would debate that. No believer would ever say, well, I don't agree with that, preacher. Where do you get that from? Well, we get it from the Bible. You know that. I know that. In the book of Matthew, chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, the Bible says, And saith unto him, All these things will I give thee, if thou wilt fall down and worship me. The devil, of course, tempting the Lord Jesus Christ uh, as he was hungered in the wilderness. And Jesus said unto him, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. That is the obligation, the responsibility of every believer to worship God, to worship God, to lift up the name of Jesus Christ, to exalt Him on high, to bow before Him, to extol His praises, to worship. But number two, to witness. In 2 Corinthians 5.20, the Bible defines the believer by using a term or a, a word It says, now then we are ambassadors for Christ. We are ambassadors. That's not just the apostles. That's not just the paid staff. That's everybody that names the name of Christ. Everybody that believes on Jesus Christ is an ambassador for him. And as though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead be reconciled to God. Again, the Apostle Paul stating to the Corinthians, you're ambassadors, we are ambassadors, you're ambassadors, believers are ambassadors. So we have worship and we have the responsibility of witnessing. That's our role as believers. As simple as it can get, we are to worship God and we are to witness of His glory to others. And ultimately His gospel we know.
So that's the believer's role. But what about the believer's responsibility? And again, we could extend that role, obviously. We could kind of maybe break it down quite a bit. We could A, B, C, D it. We could one, two, three, four it, and all those things. But in its basic nutshell, everybody needs to worship God, and everybody needs to be a witness of the one they worship. A witness of the one they worship. Okay, now, the believer's responsibility then. Turn, if you would, to Matthew chapter 5. Notice what the Bible says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. Chapter 5, verse 13. We begin there in verse 13. We're going to read through verse 16. The Bible says, Ye are the salt of the earth. But if the salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is there thenceforth good for nothing, but to, then, uh, but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men. Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and he giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Again, we have a responsibility to be salt and to be light. You say salt? Yeah. Salt both seasons and it preserves on one hand, you can put it on food and it makes it taste better, becomes more palatable. But even a more, more important role that salt plays, especially in the Old Testament, especially before there was refrigeration, is that it preserves. It preserves. See, the believer is to be the salt of the earth. What, what's that really mean then? What is it implying? Well, our presence and our influence both sweetens and preserves this present wicked world from the wrath and the judgment of Almighty God. Do you realize that in Sodom and Gomorrah, God was willing to overlook their sin? Or not overlook, don't misunderstand me, but He was willing not to destroy the city for their sin if He could only have found eight righteous do you realize that there's a great nation around us called the United States that you and I are part of, probably citizens of? And let me tell you something. God may have every reason to destroy this nation for its sinfulness and for its forgetting and neglecting and turning its back on Him. But let me tell you, I believe God preserves this nation because there are salt still here preserving it. A remnant of righteous that still reach out to God, that still believe. That the Bible is the word of God and that he alone is on the throne and deserves our worship. Salt preserves. And we have an obligation to remain pure and to remain potent. To continue to impact our society in a very positive manner. We have that responsibility we cannot afford or allow ourselves to be trodden under foot of men, or better said, maybe crushed by the weight of our culture, and in, 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 as a result, lose our influence with mankind. We can't let that happen. We are the light of the world. We are the salt. Do you know that Christ left us here to shine among the darkness? He left us here to shine amongst the, in the midst of the evil that abounds? We are to stand for right above all else. We are to elevate God and His Word before a generation that is both bound by sin and held captive by Satan. It's just the reality. So we are obliged, we are obligated to shine in order to magnify and glorify our Father, which is in heaven. 
Not only are we to be salt, and not only is that one of our responsibility to be salt, but we are to secure some things. See, because worshiping God and witnessing on His behalf is both desired and demanded by God. By the way, it is demanded by God whether we live in a free nation or an oppressive nation. So I want you to understand this, because this is a very important point. You as a believer are demanded, and God desires and demands that you both worship Him, and that you and I both witness on His behalf, whether we are in an oppressive nation, or whether we are in a free one. Whether we are in Russia, 70 years of atheism and oppression, when the wall was still mounted and high standing, it doesn't matter. You lived there, you still had to stand. It didn't matter whether you were like some of the missionaries that we've had in, or even our teacher uh, uh, that in our Bible college who was there in Romania where they were not permitted to give the gospel. He still had to worship God, and he still had to, had to witness on behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ, even though his very life could be at stake. You know, there's no difference. Just because you live in America doesn't mean that God will excuse your rebellion, disobedience in these two areas simply if all of a sudden a regime changes and you are not permitted to worship anymore, you're not permitted to witness anymore, God will say you still have to do it because you're going to stand before me and give an account one day. Do you realize we have that responsibility? That is not optional. That's our role as believers. And therefore, as a responsibility, the responsibility that we assume then is that we do our very best to preserve and protect the freedoms that we now possess, not only for ourselves, but for the future and our children and their children. The freedoms that we have in America ought to be viewed as extremely valuable. I don't think we, we understand how valuable the freedom is that we possess. I don't know that we understand how much of an honor and a privilege it is, how much of a blessing it is to be able to go out and knock on doors and not fear that the police will put a stop to it, send us back to our church or back to our home or possibly take us down to the, the local jail. I don't know that we understand how much of a privilege it is to stand on a street corner and be permitted by our law and protected by our law to proclaim the gospel on a street corner. We don't understand that. And, and maybe it's because we don't do it enough to appreciate it. But let me tell you something. It doesn't matter whether we're permitted to do it or not. We are commanded to do it. And we're going to have to do it whether or not we have the freedom to do it. And I, I don't know about you, but I just as well preserve that freedom and protect my children than to turn it over to people that are ultimately are going to strip those freedoms from us and then have to stand and be thrown in jail for that same stand that I took. As a young man, they're in prison for it. We are responsible to secure a legacy of faith and preserve and extend the same freedoms to the next generation that we have experienced and enjoyed. It ought to be one of our highest aims as citizens in the United States of America to preserve those rights at all costs. We've seen the believer's role, the believer's responsibility. Number three, the believer's reach. What can I do? 
If we want to be free to worship and witness as commanded by Scripture, if we desire to preserve and protect these rights for future generations, then we must act responsibly. One of the greatest opportunities that you and I possess as citizens to preserve and to protect our rights and posterity into the future is to elect officials into office that value what we value. Wake up. I'm not getting a whole lot of help here. But I promise you this. We are just this close to having a nation where you don't have the right to go door to door. You don't have a right to give the gospel. I promise you, we are that close. You do not have a right. Pretty soon you're not even going to probably have a right. You may have the right strip to claim what you give on your taxes to the church. They may not even let you do that. You say, well, fine, I just wouldn't give then. I know, that's what's so sad today in our culture is that when believers have embraced a worldly philosophy, we have a Christian duty to maintain a biblical perspective and to live that way with or without the support of our government. Again, one of the greatest opportunities we have to preserve these rights, to protect these rights, and to to protect the future, our families and our children and our grandchildren's rights, is to elect public officials into office that value what we value. Again, i got to admit, there's no substitute for God. There's no substitute for a devout prayer life in this endeavor. No doubt about it. There's no way that who we elect to the White House or who we elect to the Senate or to as a representative or to a local official is going to make as much difference as God himself can make as we pour our hearts out to him and as we trust and depend upon him. I know. But as a citizen of the United States, I have a responsibility and I have the privilege, mind you, to be able to take part in in electing officials that will ultimately preserve and protect the future of my faith. You say, but I don't know what, what happens when there's no Christians to choose. It doesn't have to do with just being a Christian. It has to do with finding that person that has the same values that I have. Even if there's just matching up, I'm going to find the one that's closest to what I believe. Because they are going to be the one who will fight for my right the most. Because I would do that. Again, no one's suggesting that the White House or House of Representatives or Senate alone gives the answer. But we would be remiss to neglect our duty as citizens. Listen, someone says, I'm not voting at all because I don't like any of the candidates. Well, you made a vote. That's your vote. You say, I'm trusting God. Well, I, I think you're responsible to preserve this nation. I think you're responsible to try to leave something, a legacy, for your children. Listen, I, I understand that there, you say, well, neither one of them is that great. I don't, I'm not going to debate that. I won't even debate that. What I'm telling you is this, though. Is there any one of them, any one of them that actually has a, any position biblically that lines itself up with the Bible? We want to preserve the biblical moral character of our nation. We're going off the deep end in America. We're flying off the handle. We're going totally south. What are we going to do? Just concede that? 
Man, I've got children that probably will be in the ministry one day. I've got kids that that that'll probably be knocking on a door one day. I've got children I trust that'll be serving in, for Jesus Christ and will not back down when confronted by an unbeliever. I want them to have the right to stand. I don't want someone to tell them they don't have a right to name the name of Jesus Christ in public. I don't want someone to tell them that they don't have the freedom to put up a manger scene. I don't want someone to tell them they can't take a Bible to work. I don't want that in my, my, for my kids. If we're going to see these things happen, we have to put the right person in office then. The one who most embraces and embodies the biblical model of morality expressed in the Word of God. Hey, we've got, listen, in the future, there's a possibility we get two atheists running. Let's just be honest, right? We say, well, what are you going to do about that, preacher? Well, then I'm going to look at both candidates, and I'm going to do the best I can to vote somebody in that's going to preserve and protect my rights as a believer to worship and to witness Because that's the only duty I really have. My duty's to God first. At least that's what the Bible tells me it is. And then you say, well, what if they do? What if they change all the laws? You're not going to do that. Then I'll obey God rather than men. Like in Acts chapter 5 when it was spoken there in the book of Acts. I'll just do what i got to do then. I hope it never gets to that place. And that's why my vote's so important every time. Because I don't want it to get there. We're responsible to place or to try and place someone in office who will be most likely to uphold biblical morals and ethical principles. You know the Bible commands you and I to pray for our leaders? In the book of 1 Timothy, I want you to turn there. Look at this. Listen, I don't care what you think about your president this time, next time, or last time. If they're your president, you are obligated as a believer to pray for them. Notice what it says in 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 4. Christians ought to be the best citizens there are. And if it, is a, if it is a citizen's duty to vote, then I think we ought to get out and vote. I think we ought to voice our opinion. When's the last time somebody came to you and said, what do you think about this? And you, you say, nobody asked me because they could care less what I think. Your government is saying, what do you think about this? What do you think about this? Well, I don't, I'm not even going to answer them. I don't even care. You're supposed to be the best citizen on earth. You say, I'm a citizen of heaven. Okay, so you don't, you don't enjoy any of the rights as being a citizen on earth then. You don't partake of that. You tell people all the time, I don't want those rights as a citizen. I don't need them. I'm a citizen of heaven. No, you accept every benefit you can get as a citizen of the United States. Therefore, it is definitely your responsibility to be consistent and go ahead and have an impact in the, in the process. The government came out today and said, I was worthy of so much money a month, I'm taking it. I'm taking it, if I'm worthy of it, if I have earned it, or whatever it is. If it's, I got a tax break, I'm taking it. I'm a citizen, I have every right to that tax break too. I'm taking it. Then I also have a responsibility to exert my opinion in the process to preserve those rights that I possess. Again, they're rights. First Timothy 2, notice this. I exhort, therefore, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercession, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. 
For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come into the knowledge of the truth. Notice again, we're offering prayers. We're giving prayers up, supplications, intercessions, giving of thanks for all men. That's for sure. Then he goes on to say, for kings and for all that are in authority. Why does he tell us to do that? That we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. He's saying, I'll tell you why I want you to pray for your leaders. Here's a few good reasons, believer. He says that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. That, that, that when we would have opportunity to propagate, that we would have the opportunity to propagate the gospel. Look what it says. For this, he goes on, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved. I want you to have peace. I want you to have opportunity so that you can lead others to Christ. What's he saying? I want you to pray for your leaders so you can worship and you can witness in peace. That's what he's saying. Now, I'm going to pray for my leaders either way. But every time I pray, I say, Lord, help the president to fall on this subject the right way. Because ultimately what he believes is going to affect my life. Because I know where I stand biblically and scripturally. I know where you stand biblically and scripturally. Lord, help him to stand there biblically and scripturally. And then enact laws that support morals, decency, and proper ethic. Why? So that I have the peace to worship and to witness in this life as you commanded me. When a believer goes to a voting booth, his or her main objective ought to be to preserve and protect his or her right to be an ambassador for Christ without fear of persecution or martyrdom. He or she should vote for the man or woman who will best embody and embrace biblical morality and protect our freedoms both now and into the future. Okay, all of you guys, I think I asked you to help me today. I want each of you to go grab one of those chairs over there. Grab one chair. And then line up along the front here. I asked uh, right here, here. See, what's that? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Everybody's going to grab one chair. Come all the way down here, brother. Come down and, and meet me here. I want you to stop right here, okay? Right here. Just put, stop you here, okay? Right here, right beside him. Coming, keep coming. And one more. There you go. And then you guys, I'm going to put you over here, right here, starting right here, here. Here, here, and here. Now, I, I don't want you to set your chair up. I didn't tell you to do that yet. Now I want you to take your chair and set it up on the stage. And then have a seat in it. Okay? Everybody's going to have a seat. I'll tell you, John, scoot over a little bit further because we've got to fit five over here. Keep coming over here. There we go. Slide them on over. Keep coming. There you go. Keep coming, Dino. Here you go. Right, right there in the corner, brother. There you go. All right, here they are. Look at these guys. Isn't this wonderful? Look at them. Now, I want to I give you a quick lesson, okay? This is important. Anytime we vote for a president, this lesson needs to come to your mind. Over the years, it has become very clear that the Supreme Court justices no longer simply interpret the Constitution, but they're beginning to define it, which gives them the power to shape our world 
instead of preserving it. Supreme Court justices can shape our world now. Our world as citizens of the United States. Before you are nine Supreme Court justices, our future's in their hands. Wow. Now I want to share something with you just real quickly. We're going to start, let's see here. I'll see if I can work this out. I should have had them in an order, but I I want you to see on this side you have five. On this side you have four. Now, there's a reason why that's the case. In 1986 and 1988, Ronald Reagan appointed Supreme Court justices. When he... when he appointed the Supreme Court justices, he, he appointed a conservative Supreme Court justice. You say, what's that mean? I think we all know what that means, but let's just for the sake of argument say someone that is more than likely going to uphold very basic biblical principles. The founding principles of our nation. Things that 100 years ago were important, things that were important 50 years ago, and they'll still say they're important today. Conservative. Then he appointed another justice, Kennedy, who was a moderate, basically, or his vote sometimes swings left or right. Doesn't know. He sometimes lines up with a conservative. Sometimes he'll take a position with a liberal justice. Then in 1991 and 93, excuse me, 91, George Bush Sr., he, he, he went ahead and elected a Supreme Court justice. Can anybody probably tell me was his a conservative, you think, or a liberal? Conservative. Because he was kind of that way, wasn't he? George Bush Sr.? He was kind of conservative, wasn't he? So he appointed a conservative, a Supreme Court justice. Then Bill Clinton, or President Clinton, in 1993 and 94, had an opportunity to elect two officials, or two Supreme Court justices, Can anybody tell me, were those liberal or were they conservative, do you think? Absolutely. Both were liberal Supreme Court justices. Then, in September of 2005 and January of 2006, George W. Bush also had the opportunity to appoint Supreme Court justices. Let me help you before you make a mistake. One of those was a moderate, kind of in between, wasn't completely conservative, wasn't completely liberal, their vote shifts from time to time. But what do you think the other one was? Conservative, that's correct. Then, our last president, on August the 6th and 7th of 2009 and 10, had the opportunity and privilege to appoint Supreme Court justices. Can anybody tell me, were they liberal or conservative? Absolutely. What you're looking at is a picture of the Supreme Court justice as it stands today. You say, what do you mean? On this side are the three conservative judges and the two moderates. Go one way or the other on issues. You know, issues like 
Obamacare. Issues like abortion. Issues like gay marriage. There they are. Three conservative, two moderates. On this side are our four liberal judges. How do you think they vote on gay marriage? How do you think they vote on abortion? How do you think they vote on issues that are foundational to America the last hundred years and before? Just wondering, because I think I've got a good handle on that. And I think you do too. I want you to understand that when you go to the voting booth this year, if you haven't already, the man that you put in office is likely to vote totally different than the other. One is going to elect liberals because his record proves it. And the other is more than likely because of his position on gay marriage, abortion, and a few other moral issues, is more than likely to add conservative Supreme Court justices. Now my question is this. Which of these groups would you rather extend the opportunity to affect your future freedoms? Do you want the liberal Supreme Court justice making decisions? Or do you want the conservative, even moderates, making decisions? I'm telling you that your decision is not just whether or not you're going to lose some kind of financial aid, or you're going to receive some kind of benefit in the future, or you're going to lose even a portion of Social Security. It's about preserving your future and your nation as you knew it in the past, and giving it and handing it down to the next generation. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. You can leave the seats and just go ahead and go to your seats. Thank you. They did a great job. Weren't they great justices? Great job. (laughs) You like that, Marky? That's good stuff, isn't it? That's how I feel every day up here. It's exciting, brother. That's good stuff, isn't it? I just want to close today and... I want you to know that righteousness exalteth a nation. Righteousness exalteth a nation. And I want to encourage you to try to see people through the eyes of God. There is no way that either one of those candidates is a reflection of your and my faith today. I know that. They're just not. There's not one of them that aligns himself biblically and scripturally in faith and practice as we see the Bible's definition of Christianity. No way. We don't see it. Neither one. And I got a bad feeling that in the future, we may find more candidates that do not line themselves up with true Christianity. I'm aware of that. But we still must be very careful that we do all we can to preserve our freedom to worship and to witness The freedom of the next generation to do the same. That is paramount. And that is priority. There is not one financial compensation that I can get. There's not one immediate comfort that is worth throwing away my nation. And my future, the future for my children. I don't want my kid going to jail for preaching what I've preached. I don't want my kids going to jail for witnessing as I witnessed. 
I want them to be able to be what God calls them and commands them to be without fear of persecution and without fear of even martyrdom. Samuel Langdon, on election day, May 31st, 1775, he was the Harvard president at the time. He addressed the Massachusetts Provincial, uh, uh, Provincial Congress. Here's what he said. We have rebelled against God. Seventeen seventy five. Can you imagine? How far we've come. Neither can they blush, the Bible says. We don't we're not even embarrassed by our sin anymore, hardly. But this man, it's amazing. He says, We have rebelled against God. We've lost the true spirit of Christianity, though we retain the outward profession and form of it. We've neglected and set light by the glorious gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ and his holy commands and institutions. He goes, the worship of many is but mere compliment to the deity, while their hearts are far from him. By many, the gospel is corrupted into a superficial system of moral philosophy, little better than ancient Platonism. My brethren, let us repent and implore the divine mercy. Let us amend our ways and our doings, reform everything that has been provoking the Most High, and thus endeavor to obtain the gracious interpositions of providence for our deliverance. May the Lord hear us in this day of trouble. We will rejoice in his salvation, and in the name of our God, we will set up our banners. Wherefore is all this evil upon us? Is it not because we have forsaken the Lord? Can we say we are innocent of crimes against God? No, surely it becomes us to humble ourselves under his mighty hand, that we may ex- he may exalt us in due season. My brethren, let us repent and implore the divine mercy. Let us amend our ways and our doings, reform everything that has been provoking the Most High. Let us, uh, and thus endeavor to obtain the gracious interpositions of providence again for our deliverance. If God be for us, who can be against us? The enemy has reproached us for calling on his name and professing our truth in him. They have made a mock of our solemn feasts and every appearance of serious Christianity in the land. May our land be purged from all its sins. Then the Lord will, uh, Lord will be our refuge and our strength, a very present help in trouble. And we will have no reason to be afraid, though thousands of enemies set themselves against us round about. May the Lord hear us in this day of trouble. We will rejoice in his salvation. And in the name of our God, we will set up our banners. May God help us to make decisions that protect and preserve our faith and our future. That give us the privilege and the opportunity to continue to worship and to witness the way we are commanded to do. Father, we come to you. We thank you again for this opportunity that we've had to gather today. Lord, I pray, dear God, that you would just help us, Lord, to be sensitive to your leadership. May we realize that righteousness exalteth the nation. There's so many other issues, platforms, so much politics that enters into things. But in the end, Lord, we need your favor. We want your hand on our nation, on our leaders, and in our lives. Father, there may be someone in this room today even that has never accepted or received Christ as Savior. They believe there's a God in heaven. They have no doubt that one exists. But Lord, they've never personally met you by inviting your son Jesus into their life as Lord and Savior. Father, their eternity is sure. They're going to live for eternity. 
But where? That's the question. Father, today they can know without a doubt that heaven's their home simply by trusting in Jesus Christ. For God, you so loved the world that you gave your only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Even now, drive home the truth that people can know that they can be saved, forgiven, and extended a home in heaven, the privilege of sonship. Well, thank you. With every head bowed, is there anyone say, Preacher, that's me. I don't know for sure if I died, I'd go to heaven. Please pray for me. I don't have it settled. I can't say for sure if I died, I know heaven would be my home. Can I pray for you? With an uplifted hand, I'll simply pray for you. I won't embarrass you. won't come get you. Can I pray for you? All right, you're a child of God today. Where do you stand with the Lord? Where's your faith lie? Is it in God, His Word, and truth, and righteousness? Or is it in someone or something else? Today, may we make a decision to be Christians on every facet of our life, both at home, at work, at play, wherever we find ourselves. May we fulfill the requirement and the request and command of God to worship Him and to witness on His behalf. And as we do our civic duty as citizens, may we truly take our faith into the booth with us and not leave it outside to make decisions without it. Father, help us, Lord, today. We'll thank you in Christ's name. Amen.